The shepherd's heart was filled with tears. Dumuzi's heart was filled with tears. Dumuzi stumbled across the step, weeping. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and I'm here with my guests. Kira! Victoria! And we're continuing the story of Inanna in the Underworld. Using the same translation, Diane Wolkstein and Samuel Kramer, that we used in episodes 7 and 8. So this is part of the same story, but it is a different text called Dumuzi's Dream. So previously, Inanna was allowed to come back to life, but only if she found someone to take her place in the underworld. So the Gala demons tried to take her servant and her son, but she talked them out of it, so instead they took her husband, Dumuzi. That's some real shit, though. Like, you know, if you're gonna, like, if, if you had to, like, for a million dollars let someone in your life die, it's not your best bitch and it's not your kid. It's definitely the husband. <laughs> Yes. So Dumuzi is currently wandering the steppe, weeping, saying, O steppe, set up a whale for me. O crabs in the river, mourn for me. O frogs in the river, call for me. O my mother, see her to her, weep for me. If she does not find the five breads, if she does not find the ten breads, if she does not know the day I am dead, you, O steppe, tell her, tell my mother. On the steppe, my mother will shed tears for me. On the steppe, my little sister will mourn for me. He lay down to rest. The shepherd lay down to rest. Dumuzi lay down to rest. As he lay among the buds and rushes, he dreamed a dream. He awoke from his dream. He trembled from his vision. He rubbed his eyes, terrified. Dumuzi called out, Bring her! Bring my sister! Bring my Geshtanana, my little sister! My tablet-knowing scribe, my singer who knows many songs, my sister who knows the meaning of words, my wise woman who knows the meaning of dreams. I must speak to her. I must tell her my dream. Dumuzi spoke to Geshtanana, saying, A dream! My sister, listen to my dream! Rushes rise all about me. Rushes grow thick about me. A single growing reed trembles for me. From a double growing reed, first one, then the other is removed. In a wooded grove, the terror of tall trees rises about me. Water is poured over my holy hearth. The bottom of my churn drops away. My drinking cup falls from its peg. My shepherd's crook has disappeared. An eagle seizes a lamb from the sheepfold. A falcon catches a sparrow on the reed fence. My sister, your goats drag their lapis beards in the dust. Your sheep scratch the earth with bent feet. The churn lies silent. No milk is poured. The cup lies shattered. Dumuzi is no more. The sheepfold is given to the winds. Geshtinana spoke. My brother, do not tell me your dream. Dumuzi, do not tell me such a dream. The rushes which rise all about you are your demons who will pursue and attack you. The single growing reed which trembles for you is our mother, and she will mourn for you. The double growing reed from which one then the other is removed. Dumuzi is you and I. First one then the other will be taken away. In the wooded grove, the terror of tall trees which rises above you is the gala. They will descend on you in the sheepfold. When the fire is put out on your holy hearth, the sheepfold will become a house of desolation. When the bottom of your churn drops away, you will be held by the gala. When your drinking cup falls from its peg, you will fall to the earth, onto your mother's knees. When your shepherd's crook disappears, the gala will cause everything to wither. The eagle who seizes a lamb in the sheepfold is the gala who will scratch your cheeks. The falcon who catches a sparrow in the reed fence is the gala who will climb the fence to take you away. Dumuzi, the goats drag their lapis beards in the dust. My hair will swirl around in heaven for you. My sheep scratch the earth with bent feet. Oh, Dumuzi, I will tear at my cheeks in grief for you. The churn lies silent. No milk is poured. The cup lies shattered. Dumuzi is no more. The sheepfold is given to the winds. Okay, so he just told her his dream and then she like predicted it because she's somehow very in mm. intuitive and knows exactly what that all means well it's a, yeah it's a common theme in near eastern literature i guess 
There's a there's a dream interpreting scene in Gilgamesh. There's at least two in the Bible. Mm. There's uh, Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, and there's Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. I think it's a great name. No. Yeah. Scarcely had she spoken these words when Dumuzi cried out, "My sister, quickly go up the hill. Do not go with slow, noble steps, sister. Run." The Gala, hated and feared by men, are coming on the boats. They carry wood to bind the hands. They carry wood to bind the neck. Sister, run! Geshtanana went up the hill. Dubuzi's friend went with her. Dubuzi cried, Do you see them? The friend cried, They're coming. The large Gala who carry wood to bind the neck. They're coming for you. Quickly, brother! Hide your head in the grass. Your demons are coming for you. Dubuzi said, My sister, tell no one my hiding place. My friend, tell no one my hiding place. I will hide in the grass. I will hide among the small plants. I will hide among the large plants. I will hide in the ditches of Arali. Geshtinan and Dumuzi's friend answered, Dumuzi, if we tell your hiding place, let your dogs devour us. Your black dogs of shepherdship, your royal dogs of kingship, let your dogs devour us. The small Gala spoke to the large Gala. You, Gala, who have no mother or father, no sister, brother, wife, or child, you who flutter over heaven and earth like wardens, who cling to a man's side, who show no favor, who know not good from evil, tell us, who has ever seen the soul of a frightened man living in peace? Let us not look for Dumuzi in the home of his friend. Let us not look for Dumuzi in the home of his brother-in-law. Let us look for Dumuzi in the home of his sister, Geshtinana. So they really do appear, because it kind of sounded like he was talking about his dream, and then he just started projecting. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's, yeah. It sounds like a scene of personal madness, which, fair. He's kind of just being sold out of his marriage. The Gala clapped their hands gleefully. I like that they're just, like, gleefully clapping their yeah. hands, <laughs> like little little sprites. Right. They went searching for Dubuzi. They came to the home of Geshtinana. They cried out, show us where your brother is. Geshtinana would not speak. They offered her the water gift. She refused it. They offered her the grain gift. She refused it. Heaven was brought close. Earth was brought close. Geshtinana would not speak. They tore her clothes. Geshtinana would not speak. The small Gala said to the large Gala, Who since the beginning of time has ever known a sister to reveal a brother's hiding place? Come, let us look for Dumuzi in the home of his friend. So we'll see what a promise from Dumuzi's friend is worth. But first, so this episode is a continuation of our look at the pottery Neolithic. And today we will be looking at daily life in the 5000s BCE during what is often called the Halaf period. So, as we've talked about, the pre-pottery Neolithic B was a climatic optimum. Warm, wet conditions allowed people to experiment with farming methods. High yields allowed small communities to grow. A small handful of villages grew into pre-pottery Neolithic B megasites. We looked at Chatal Hayruk as an example, but most of these were in Syria. And then, around 7000 BCE, two things happened. The first pottery appears in northern Syria, although pottery existed in Egypt before 9000 BCE, and we have rare examples in pre-pottery Neolithic Palestine, but it won't be common in the Near East until after 7000 BCE. And people started to move out of these megasites into smaller, more spread out sites. So obviously, the decline of these major sites can't have a single reason. We looked at social and health reasons last time, but the end of the climatic optimum might have caused lower agricultural yields. When we look at where people move to, they tended to choose areas where it rains more. So the climate might have stopped supporting large settlements, and it might have been possible to dry farm in fewer areas. But also, pottery allowed smaller groups of people to store more stuff for longer. Pottery affords better protection from the elements than a basket. It's way easier to make than a stone bowl, and it doesn't fall apart like whiteware. It is vessels made of plaster. So let's go through the history of the pottery Neolithic across the entire Near East, starting with the initial pottery Neolithic between 7000 and 6700 BCE. I'm borrowing this chronology from a 2009 paper by Oliver Neuvenhuse and Peter Ackermans. So in this earliest period, pottery is fragile and extremely rare. The earliest pottery shows up in a limited range, next to year-round watercourses in dry farming regions of northern Syria. 
During this period, we have no pottery Neolithic sites found in the steppes between valleys. So they haven't yet colonized these kinds of wide grasslands between watercourses. So to take as an example, the earliest occupation at Sabi Abiyad, the large tripartite houses were probably homes for extended families. They were already in the rhythm of abandoning them every few generations. So in general, they were living in small, isolated villages, generally less than one hectare, or smaller than two American football fields. Next phase is the early Pottery Neolithic, between 6700 and 6250 BCE. This is the crucial period when the entire region adopted pottery. So at the beginning of this period, potsherds are about as common as stone vessels, which are obviously way more labor-intensive to make, but by the end, pottery is ubiquitous. We see evidence of adapting pottery for storage, so adding plaster to the outside makes them more structurally sound and less porous. They're probably beginning to store a wider range of materials in this pottery. This may point to a concept of private property, because now it's easier to make a storage container, fill it, and seal it off from the world. Stamp seals are a way to mark your identity on the seal of that container and to make sure no one else breaks that seal and steals your stuff. So many academics argue that this is when we see the concept of private property develop, as in something that's owned by one person in the community that other people in the community are expressly forbidden to take. Obviously, this concept doesn't really apply in the same way in a small pre-pottery Neolithic village, because generally those villages were made up of maybe 100 people at most, all related to each other. Everyone's ancestors had either lived there since forever or married into the village. Everything would be shared and there would be no outgroup to keep goods from, and not that many goods to hoard anyway. But now, during the pottery Neolithic, we don't know the relationships that different households had with each other. Maybe people living nearby were different branches of the same family. Maybe they were different families. But either way, it's likely that in the pottery Neolithic, we see the first real social division between neighbors. Meanwhile, we still don't have any pottery Neolithic sites in the grasslands between rivers. So to the extent that anyone is living in this area, they're still probably doing whatever they were doing earlier, probably mobile herding. So moving forward to the Halaf period, which is what we're focusing on today, and starting with the early Halaf period, between 6250 and 5700 BCE. Halaf culture is one of the pottery Neolithic material cultures. It's named after the site of Tel Halaf on the Khabur River, on the modern border between Syria and Turkey, and the term Halaf period is often used interchangeably with the early to mid-5000s. So if we only look in the river valleys, we see the population drop in the late 6000s and gradually rise again in the early 5000s, probably has something to do with the 8.2 kilogram event during that period. We also see rapid changes in pottery styles, and most sites are still one hectare or less, but now a few centers are over three hectares. Also, if you look at the grasslands, which like I said, have been mostly empty up to this point, we see a population explosion. So people who previously lived in the valleys are starting to colonize the steppe, maybe a response to unpredictable rainfall and or lower yields in their fields, again, from this 8.2 kill year event. So a few things allowed them to move away from the river, including fully domesticated cattle, which they may have already used to pull plows, as well as an administrative system of seals and tokens. And now that they start making round houses out of mud bricks or rammed earth, they don't have any need for timber. We also see a greater reliance on secondary products, like leather, fibers, and like I said, maybe plows. Especially dairy, which we have evidence for during this period. And dairy appears along with the first jars made of ceramics. So we now have pottery for storing and pouring liquids. This accompanied a change in the way that people thought of villages. Instead of being homes for sedentary farmers in a specific place, the village might have become an administrative center for a larger and more mobile community. So in other words, not everyone lives at the village year-round, but the village is kind of a home base for people that might be moving around the landscape. They might be storing their stuff there long-term while they're moving the herds across the grassland. This is when we see larger multi-room storage buildings. For example, at Sabi Abiyad, we see lots of stamp seals, maybe for seasonal storage of goods. And again, that's when you put all your stuff in a pottery jar, you seal the neck of the jar up with clay, you stamp that clay and let it air dry so that anyone who wants to open the jar will have to break the image that you've impressed into the clay so that everyone will know that someone who wasn't you stole something from that jar. Also, the rate of construction and abandonment of villages increases. People are building smaller houses and storehouses. 
They're sometimes digging wells, which allows them to live farther away from running water. And some of these sites rely more on hunting than anyone since the pre-Pottery Neolithic B had. Again, especially if they're not near great farmland, and especially if their area does not have a whole lot of access to water, it makes more sense to eat more meat and less grain that you grow yourself. So moving to the later Halaf, between 5700 and 5300 BCE, now we see more sites, bigger sites, and more complex sites. The population seems to grow gradually everywhere. So one good way to maintain an egalitarian society is if the village gets too big, some people can move away and start a new village. That way, you don't exhaust all your local resources, and you gain an ally elsewhere. This would explain the continued small size of villages and lack of hierarchy, and it also would explain how Halaf culture quickly spread across a wide area. So, because of this rapid spread, it might not make sense to look for a specific Halaf quote-unquote homeland. Instead, just a bunch of people who all split off for the same region, and because there's this kind of large network of cultural interaction, you know, this particular style of material culture spread across this whole region. And like I said in episode 7, we know that Halaf culture grew gradually out of pottery Neolithic culture in Syria and northern Iraq. In a much earlier version of this episode, I said that the Halaf people came down from Anatolia, because that's what it said in the 1970 Cambridge History. That is not the case. This also led to lots of interregional trade, because you're probably related to lots of people spread out across a wide area each of whom would presumably be in contact with lots of other people, and so on. So people have access to alabaster, carnelian, diorite, lapis lazuli, limestone, marble, obsidian, quartz, rock crystal, sandstone, serpentinite, and steatite, as well as seashells like cowries and dentalium. So although most villages are still one hectare or less, this is when some sites grow into larger centers, including Tel Munbate, which had been a pre-pottery Neolithic B megasite, and now becomes one of these Halaf-era centers, as well as Domus Tepe, whose death pit we looked at in episode 6, but these sites might also just be big because people moved around a lot within them. Like I said back in episode 7, the Pottery Neolithic involves a lot of abandonment and reoccupation of buildings on a generational scale. So even if we have a 20-hectare site, it may be a much smaller number of people who are moving around the area and rebuilding old abandoned houses and so on. You know, when we see a site like that, it's very hard to separate the buildings by decade or year as much as we can by century. So to look at Halaf culture... It's hard to generalize about the entire region, given how spread out and adaptable their lifestyle was to different circumstances. So there's no one single way of life, but instead a range of them based on the local ecosystem. So for example, we can imagine a village in a dry farming region on a major river. So they have drinking water year-round from the river. They have enough rain for agriculture. These people might have access to a broad range of crops. Emmer, barley, lentils, field peas, chickpeas, bitter vetch, and flax. Nuts like pistachios and almonds. And fruits like figs, apples, and apricots. As well as vegetables like lettuce, onions, garlic, cucumbers, beets, and turnips. Obviously, not everyone grew everything, but that would be what was available. Cattle need lots of water, 25 liters per day or 30 liters if they're lactating. So it's best to raise them near a major body of water. They also don't love traveling huge distances. So cattle were extremely symbolically important to Halaf culture. Bull heads or bucrania are among the most common motifs in Halaf pottery. Whereas on the other hand, in the grasslands away from major rivers, we see a more mobile lifestyle with sheep and goats and fewer cattle. They're less reliant on agriculture and they generally have to dig a well if they want to live in the same place and have access to fresh water. This kind of lifestyle changes the environment over time. Remember, sheep and goats are descended from wild mountain species, not, for example, the gazelle that live in the plains. So grasses of the Jazeera plain did not evolve under pressures like this. So over time, we see slow-growing plants get eaten and replaced by fast-growing grasses. The less people are farming, the more reliant they'll be on hunted game. So at some seasonal camps, up to 60% of animal bones come from hunted game mostly wild ass and gazelle, and to quote a 2013 paper by Peter Ackermans, also, quote, hare, fox, hyena, wild cat, turtle, fish, and birds like the stork, goose, duck, and crow, end quote. And to look at some animals from other sites, at Yarim Tepe in the northwestern plains of Iraq, we see onager, jackal, badger, porcupine, and a tiger. So there were tigers in Mesopotamia. 
And at Banahilk in the nearby mountains, we see red and roe deer, red fox, brown bear, leopards, hedgehogs, birds, and fishes. So generally people lived in small villages, like I said, usually under one hectare. These would be a few dozen people living there on a seasonal basis. At most, we would see people living there for a couple generations. They lived in scattered, round houses dug into the ground, three to six meters across, with walls made of mud. This is probably an extended family household. It would be the fundamental unit of society. Sometimes we see a rectangular antechamber, creating a kind of keyhole-shaped house. And between these houses, we see small secondary structures, probably for storage. Most domestic activities seem to have been done outside, probably shared between households. We also see large multi-room buildings. They might be for long-term storage of several different goods. So community specialization requires trade with other communities. And we don't generally see any evidence of elite administration. So even though we see stamp seals, we don't generally see any evidence of social hierarchy embedded in these stamp sealings. As I mentioned, at Sabi Abiyad, these two types of buildings might reflect a gender division of labor. So we can look at ethnographic parallels, where there's one type of house for men and administration, and another type for women, children, and domestic labor. Or maybe people would sleep in the roundhouses and work outside or in the rectangular houses. Most likely, the village would be a collection of mostly autonomous households, sometimes small groups of settlements nearby each other. They may or may not have been occupied simultaneously. Like I said, we don't see much evidence of social hierarchy. In 2015, Marcella Frangipani called Halaf society, quote, markedly egalitarian, end quote. And like I've been talking about, starting in the late 6000s, we see stamp seals used to identify particular goods with particular people. Along with tokens, this is a system to store and inventory goods. So for the rest of the episode, we're going to look at daily life in a kind of median Halaf village. Like I said, the lifestyle varied a lot by region, so this is kind of a fictional aggregate of many different similar sites. One reason for this kind of flat exercise is that this will more or less be the default lifestyle for the next 5,000 years or so. Even after the development of cities and writing and big, complex institutions and so on, lots of people will still be living in the countryside, still basically doing this. So if you'll indulge me, you wake up around 7 a.m. with the bird song. You don't have any roosters to crow with the dawn because there's still jungle fowl in Southeast Asia. Your bed is probably a pile of sheepskins, maybe with fresh rushes to lie on. Sheets and blankets are already extremely labor-intensive to weave, but your lifestyle already results in an endless supply of sheepskins, and they're warmer than blankets anyway. You live in a round, dome-shaped house, 4 meters in diameter, about 13 feet. The door is fairly small, and you have to crouch to enter. This helps with insulation. The walls are made of packed, sun-dried clay. There's no need for timber or reeds to make your house. Plus, it's less flammable without them. There's plenty of room inside for a nuclear family to sleep. There's a warp-weighted loom. Most work is outside, but you want to keep your textiles out of the rain, especially since any given textile will be on the loom for several days, if not weeks. You live nearby a few other roundhouses, which probably belong to other branches of the family. There's one big rectangular building nearby for storage. And near that storage building, there are outdoor work areas, including kilns, ovens, and fireplaces. More importantly, you have emmerfields that are watered by rain, and sometimes water that you carry over from a well if it doesn't rain enough. You have smaller fields for other crops, and a garden for herbs and vegetables, as well as herds of animals in pens. Obviously, there's lots of debate about social relations and ownership and so on, so without wading into who owned what land and what animals and so on, it's fair to say that there are animals that you're partially responsible for, and they're ready to be milked in the morning. You probably have a lot of sheep and goats and maybe only a few adult cows, so it's a good thing your ancestors invented pottery to store this milk in. Speaking of which, you have a full set of utilitarian pottery for things like cooking, milking, churning butter, making cheese, and so on, and also large storage pots for long-term grain storage. You make all these pots yourselves and make new ones when they break. But also, you have what is essentially your family's set of fine china. This is high-quality pottery made by a skilled potter. Your specific set was a wedding present. Unlike your daily utilitarian pottery, not only is the clay itself finer, prettier, more waterproof, and fired hotter, but it's also painted, decorated with culturally significant motifs, 
like fine china, you used as pottery for special occasions, you know, weddings, funerals, religious occasions, showing off to neighbors. Also, when your relatives come in from out of town to visit, all of these revolve around feasting, commensality, and reifying a communal identity. So anyway, the animals are milked. You're going to mix some of this milk with rains and lentils to feed the baby because you're gradually weaning the baby off their mother's milk. There is a story that is everywhere on the internet and impossible to prove that cheese was discovered by mobile herders who used animal stomachs to store animal milk and that the latent bacteria, stomach acid, and rennet in the stomach started to spoil the milk. And presumably they're also walking around and kind of agitating the container. And then when they opened it up again, to their shock and delight, they realized that they'd created cheese or at least a yogurt-like fluid that gave them the idea like I said, it's a well-known story, but it's impossible to prove. So, But it is worth pointing out that rennet is a name for specific enzymes produced in the stomachs of ruminants, that is sheep, goats, and cattle. And rennet from butchered cattle has been used in cheese making since forever. So I guess in fairness, it'd be hard to discover that some other way. But either way, you have pottery now, which allows you more control over the cheese making process. More importantly, this allows you to store these calories for longer. It also breaks down lactose, if you're still lactose intolerant at this point, because, you know, milk at room temperature is going to spoil within a few hours but cheese will last much longer. Another option is butter. Whereas making cheese is a chemical process like beer, which we'll look at today, making butter is a physical process with no chemical transformation necessary. Basically, to make butter, you break up the membranes around fat droplets and drain out the buttermilk, resulting in a shelf-stable water and fat emulsion, which, like certain kinds of cheese, also has much less lactose. So there are a few things that have to happen every day. This is probably the main downside of living in isolated communities. You have to make and fix all your own stuff, you know, tools and clothes and so on. If you break a pot, you have to go make a new one. The kilns are generally outside because of all the smoke. If you tear your clothes, you have to sew them back together, or I guess scrap them and start over. And if you break a ladle or a spatula or a needle or an arrow shaft, you have to go carve a new one. Also, someone has to go graze the sheep. That is, take them out of their pens to a fresh field of grass, make sure none of them wander off, and protect them from predators. That's not a hypothetical. Depending on what part of the Near East you're in, there are literally lions, tigers, and or bears, not to mention leopards and wolves, or humans who could try to steal them. It's also not unlikely that you would have a dog to help. Like I said, dogs are probably not intensively bred for shepherding yet, so they probably don't have specific breeds, but dogs instinctively protect their own against predators. Speaking of which, domestic dogs are common in late Neolithic sites, but we don't see many dogs at any one particular site, so it doesn't seem like every individual household had its own pet dog. The average Neolithic dog was 50 centimeters tall at its withers. That's about the size of a border collie. There's no way to know what dogs were used for, like I said, we don't see any specialized breeds for hunting or herding. At least we don't have any evidence of breeding that affects their skeletons, which of course is all we can see. We have some evidence that dogs and sheep were penned together, which is evidence of relationship between the two species mitigated by humans. Sheep are amenable to being herded, but an untrained dog will attack sheep. So this may be a guard dog meant to protect the sheep in the pen against predators at night, rather than a sheep dog to guide the herds around in the pastures. But either way, if you raise the dog with the sheep, the dog will essentially be socialized to see the sheep as its own family or own community and will protect them against predators. In a 2012 paper by Rachel Bichener, she writes that the most likely role of Halaf-era dogs were as, quote, roaming pariahs that just about earned their keep by consuming refuse, killing vermin, and alerting people to intruders with their barking, end quote. This is the role of many dogs in the modern Middle East. So again, these probably aren't pets per se, more just kind of commensal animals that live in the community. But of course, the majority of daily labor would revolve around farm work. This is a full-time job for the whole family. So let's say right now it's October, so it's time to plow the fields, which is when you break up the soil to create optimal conditions for the grain you're about to plant. Here is a problem about this period. We don't know when they invented plows pulled by livestock. If the whole contraption is made of wood and rope, it would be invisible to archaeology. There's no way to tell from the soil if it was plowed or when. We know at the latest that they had plows by the mid-3000s BCE. So around the same time as the Halaf period, 
Cattle show signs of bone and joint trauma in places across the Near East, maybe from pulling plows, but it may also be because people were just bringing them around rough terrain. So walking on uneven ground would create the same kind of bone trauma that pulling plows would. And I read a paper looking for evidence of cattle pulled plows at Trotahuyuk, and after analyzing all the data, the evidence was inconclusive, but there wasn't a huge amount of change from the beginning of occupation to the end. So who knows? If they did have cattle pulled plows, they would act as a multiplier of human labor. And if they were quote unquote owned by a single human or a household, this would give that household leverage over other households' labor. So if other people borrow your cattle for their own subsistence, you know, in order to plow their own fields, and then they owe you their labor, helping you harvest your own grain. You know, that is essentially a way to parlay your wealth into control over other people's labor and the ability to use that control to further enrich yourself. This is how we can see the ownership of movable property turn into institutional generational inherited wealth. It's not an accident that cattle and chattel have the same etymology from the Latin word for head as in head of cattle. But also instead of cattle pulled plows, we might have human pulled plows. So a kind of tool that you drag through the dirt without having to involve an animal. This might have been an intermediate step between hand tools and cattle pulled plows. They would only be reliant on human labor, not human control over animal labor. But other way, this would still give you more productivity than people only using hand tools. Textile production would be another full-time job, or at least it's hugely time-intensive and someone has to do it. Modern academics tend to assume that it was women's work. So the earliest domestic source of fibers would be flax used to make linen, as well as linseed oil. So to remove the fibers from flax plants, you placed dried plants in a stream or in the dew long enough to rot the pectin away from the fibers. This process is called redding, and it's cognate with the word rot. Then you break it, which is when you beat and twist loose the woody parts of the stem, and then comb the fibers until they're free and clean. This process is called hackling, after which you'll end up with a mass of flax fibers, so you need to spin those into individual threads, which you do by stretching a mass of fibers into long ribbons, and then you wrap those ribbons around a distaff. So you're holding a distaff in one hand that has these ribbons wrapped around it, and then on the other hand you have a spindle, which is a kind of rotating top, so when you spin it, it gathers the fibers into a thread, then you can sew or weave with that thread. This whole process is probably older than the Neolithic. What's new during the Neolithic are animal fibers. So domestic sheep are still very similar to wild sheep, and they're not able to grow wool yet. As I mentioned, the woolly sheep that we're familiar with took thousands of years to breed, during which time people gradually selected for longer and finer fibers. So wild sheep have two types of hair. One type is fine wool, which has microscopic scales, which, because of friction, stick to each other, which allow them to be spun into thread. But they also have long, coarse hairs called kemp, and they shed both of these in the spring at least in the wild. So probably the oldest technique for gathering hairs from the sheep would be to pluck them by hand. That is not pulling them out of the follicles, but after they already shed them and these hairs are just kind of loose on their body, you pick up those loose stray hairs and you can pluck these fibers once a year. The first tool for cutting fibers would probably be a knife. Later on during the Bronze Age, we'll see them use shears, but you can shear a sheep twice a year. These fibers can be spun immediately, but usually they're combed or teased by hand first to separate the kemp or the coarse fibers from the wool. From here, the process is similar to flax fibers. You wrap the ribbons around a distaff and use a spindle to spin them into thread. In both cases, now you're ready to produce textiles. So the earliest clear proof we have of woven cloth comes from Jarmo in Iraq in the 6000s BCE. You see two clay balls with an impression of woven cloth in them. These are two different weaves, which shows that people were already highly skilled at weaving. And at the same site, we see basket impressions in clay. The earliest loom would be a band loom. This is also called belt weaving where you tie one end of the warp to yourself and you tie the other end to a nearby tree or maybe your big toe. This allows you to lean back to create tension in the warp. For a wider fabric, you can spread the near end out with a bar. But now, if the far end is attached to a single point instead of a bar, the warp ends fan out in weird angles. So if you take the beam near you and hang it up, 
and you tie stones or clay weights to the bottom of the warp. This creates tension. So in other words, you have a bar on the top and the warp strings are hanging down and at the bottom of these warp strings, they're being held in place by stone or clay weights. So this kind of loom is called a warp weighted loom. If you stake the beam to the ground and tie the other end to a bar a few meters away, that is a different way to create tension. This is called a horizontal ground loom. This type was more common across the Near East and it's still used by Bedouin women in the modern era. I mentioned earlier that you had a warp weighted loom in your house. That's because of the loom weights that we saw at Sabi Abiyad. Notably, the clay loom weight is the only non-organic part of a loom. Ground looms are made of entirely organic materials, making them invisible to archaeology. So your most important daily task would be making dinner. I know I skipped breakfast. I didn't really want to speculate about the order of meals. But essentially, the entire household produces a certain amount of food per year. And the daily problem is taking as little of that as possible. It is keeping everyone strong and healthy without depleting your stores. You're still a few weeks away from harvest time, so you're getting to the end of last year's harvest. The daily work of cooking is grinding grain. You need to store it in grain form for maximum shelf life. Some people prefer to farm hulled grains or grains to stay in the seed coat because they have a longer shelf life. Others prefer naked wheat because it's easier to process. But either way, in order to make anything, you need to dip into your grain store for the year. So you have some outdoor clay tenor ovens for making bread. This word is cognate with tenor in India. This kind of oven is common across southern and western Asia. In the same area, we see a large flat platform, which many assume is for grinding flour. I mentioned earlier that you probably have gardens, which are invisible to archaeology. If we see the pollen of a particular kind of plant, there's no way to know whether they were gathering it from the wild or growing it in their own garden. But in addition to the fruits and vegetables I mentioned earlier, you also have your pick of whatever local herbs taste good. Most of the meat you eat would be from young, cold livestock animals, either fresh or salted and smoked for storage. You could also go hunting or fishing if you want, but as I noted, you have a bunch of other stuff to do around the village. On any given day, you're also in the middle of a few different projects. I already mentioned cheese and butter. We'll talk about beer in just a sec. We can't know if they were pickling vegetables at this point, but it's not impossible. That would also, of course, improve the shelf life. But most importantly, everyone has to eat every day. So household production has to feed everyone every day. And we get that food from a combination of fields and gardens and your herds of livestock and whatever foraging you do to fill the gaps. So to look at beer, I want to start by thanking listener David Boschko for his help with this section. I knew nothing about beer going into this, and I said some things about beer in a previous version of this episode that were patently incorrect, and so his experience with brewing was invaluable. There are a few reasons to brew beer. Cereals are easily transported and stored. It's fun to get drunk. And when we're talking about this kind of low alcohol content beer, there's more nutrition in beer than there is in gruel, so it's easily metabolized, which would lead to a selective advantage for people who make and drink beer. So beer and other similar beverages with a low alcohol content are associated with several different types of occasions across world society, like harvest and major labor projects, as well as ritual ceremonies like coming of age, weddings, and funerals. So in terms of nutrition, both wheat and barley are largely composed of complex carbohydrates. They vary from 13 to 20% protein and include some fat. But in their unprocessed forms, neither are very nutritious. Both are high in lysine, which is an important amino acid. It helps the body synthesize other amino acids into protein. And barley, but not wheat, is low in amino acids containing sulfur. Also, both have B vitamins, like riboflavin, niacin, and thiamine, but not enough to meet the basic nutritional needs. Both grains, especially wheat, are high in phytates, which bind calcium and prevent the digestive system from absorbing it. So, ideally, the brewing process will solve some of these problems. Yeast is a type of fungus. There are many different species of yeast in the wild, but only a tiny handful are used for brewing. When I talk about yeast here, I'll be referring to brewer's yeast in particular. The various kinds of brewer's yeast are different varieties of a single species called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. 
and brewing relies on this yeast to convert sugars into ethanol. Sugars like glucose in cereals, fructose in fruit, and lactose in milk, which can be brewed into beer, wine, and kumis, respectively. The fermentation process needs yeast. The oldest strain of yeast known in Western Eurasia was used for grape wine. Bread yeasts are descended from this grape wine yeast, and a different strain of the same species is used to brew beer. So a few differences between wine and beer yeast. Wine yeast is more alcohol tolerant, leading to a more thorough fermentation process. Wine yeast is also terrible at eating maltose. We'll see why that makes it worse at brewing beer. Beer yeast is also more flavorful, but this varies widely. So these strains of yeast show signs of domestication. Compared to wild yeast, they're more alcohol tolerant and less picky eaters. They're also better at producing ethanol, which of course is the reason humans propagated it. So probably humans selected for these characteristics without knowing it. So yeast produces lots of lysine, which helps turn amino acids into protein. It significantly increases B vitamins, which are a necessary part of the diet. It decreases the concentration of phytates, which allows the body to absorb much more calcium. Some of these enhanced vitamins are not available from other plant sources. So in this case, beer would be a unique source of certain nutrients. One disadvantage of yeast is that an adult can only consume 20 to 25 grams of yeast nucleic acid per day, which I'm told is an extremely large amount of it. Past that point, serum uric acid builds up, leading to high blood pressure, gout, and kidney abnormalities. Wild yeast is present in the air. All it needs to ferment are water and sugars. So, for example, fruit juice left outside would be perfect conditions for yeast. This is probably how people discovered wine. We'll talk about that next episode. So, there are three stages in brewing beer. Malting is when you allow the grain seeds to sprout. Mashing is when you break down starches into fermentable sugars. And fermentation, which is when you turn the sugars into alcohol. So the first step in the malting process is soaking cereals in water. Seeds start to sprout, just like they would in the ground. The grain develops an enzyme called diastase in its root tips. This enzyme breaks down starch into simple sugars, making them more fermentable. There are three good reasons to malt wheat and barley together. So number one, wheat produces less diastase than barley, but barley produces enough diastase to break down the starch in an almost equivalent amount of wheat. In other words, barley has a higher diastatic power, leading to a higher margin of error when brewing. Number two, wheat adds the sulfur-containing amino acids that barley lacks. And number three, beer made with barley and wheat tastes better than beer made from just wheat. Plus, in later societies, barley will be a cheaper grain than wheat. But if this process of growth continues, the amount of diastase will decrease, so it's usually warmed up or left in the sun. This kills the rootlet, but keeps the diastase at a maximum. Now you have malted grains. At this point, you'll probably want to dry these malted grains out, otherwise they'll rot quickly. Once the cereal has dried out, you can grind it up. The seeds hole has been softened, which makes it easy to grind. So now we move to the mashing process. So you want to start by adding the ground malt to a mixture of additional raw grains and hot water. Ideally, you want to grind these raw cereals up into little bits, but not quite into a powder. The ideal temperature is around 67 degrees Celsius or 150 degrees Fahrenheit, where you can let it sit at a lower temperature for a longer time, for example, a pot in an oven. The diastase from the malting process converts the starch and raw grains into sugars. These sugars are sweet and nutritious for both humans and yeast. This process is called mashing. So when you heat these raw grains in water, this leads to hydrolyzed starches. These starches are the most susceptible to the effects of the diastase. So the diastase from barley is often mixed into a cooked cereal porridge. The mashing process almost doubles caloric content, bringing it up to seven calories per gram instead of four. This new sugar is called maltose. You can think of malt in old-timey milkshakes. It breaks down gluten, making more nutrition available to more people. That is, if people were gluten intolerant. Now you have a mixture full of this sugar called maltose. This mixture is called wort, W-O-R-T. It's sweet to drink, but it goes bad quickly. Like I said, the sugar tastes good to people, but it's also attractive to both yeast and bacteria. Because this wort has not been fermented, it's full of proteins. These can make the beer hazy, which is today called raw ale. Today, it's common to boil the wort to break down these proteins, but they probably didn't back then. 
So the next step is fermentation. So to start fermenting, you add yeast to this wort, probably from a kind of starter. We'll talk about that. Yeast secretes enzymes to help it digest this maltose. That is, it breaks the maltose down so yeast can eat it. This turns the maltose into ethanol, which is less nutritious, but it does get you drunk. During fermentation, yeast grows by eating the maltose from the sprouted grains. But this process only produces alcohol if the fermentation environment is acidic enough. Often, environmental factors make it acidic enough on its own, but if not, you can allow this mixture to sour overnight by exposing it to ambient bacteria, specifically lactobacillus, which produces lactic acid. These bacteria are often stored as part of a starter, often in the same starter that includes yeast and sometimes other molds that help break down starches. Basically, a starter is a room temperature colony of various types of microorganisms, similar to a sourdough starter today. It's worth noting that yeast turns sugar into carbon dioxide and water. If this produces alcohol, the growth of the yeast declines. There's an inverse relationship between nutrition and the amount of sugar converted to alcohol. So in other words, wort is extremely sweet. It has no alcohol, and it's very good for you with a lot of calories. If the brewing process goes all the way, all of that sugar gets turned into alcohol. This would not be very nutritious, but it would be very high in alcohol content. So under optimal modern conditions, the oxygen supply is carefully regulated or it'll mess up the flavor, resulting in beer that can be as high as 15 to 18% alcohol. But this is only possible with modern technology and modern strains of yeast and so on. Traditional brewing would be much less controlled. It would be harder to prevent air from reaching the mixture, leading to an alcohol content under 5%. This would leave lots of sugars that aren't fermented into ethanol. This makes the beer sweet, more like wort. Also, in certain cases, it might be wise not to let it ferment all the way to prevent too much bacteria from growing in it. As we'll talk about, the bacteria that makes beer sour grows slower than yeast. So this would result in a sweeter beer with lower alcohol content that takes less time to brew, which is kind of a win-win. Because of this, compared to modern beer and ale, Neolithic beer would have less alcohol, again, because the whole process is less efficient than it is today. It would be hazy, like raw ale. Because of the lack of filtration, the strainer jars that we saw at Tel El Kerk, notwithstanding, it would probably have chunks of grains floating around in it. This is why in Sumerian art, we often see people drinking beer with straws made from reeds, which would also filter out these chunks of grains floating in it. Ancient beer also often had additions like fruit or honey, which would make it easier to ferment and would also add flavor. So in an earlier version of this episode, I said that because of the low pH and anaerobic storage, beer had a long shelf life. This was not true for the distant past. Beer stored for a long time might go sour. It is bacteria are likely to get into it and colonize it. It wouldn't have been impossible to keep bacteria out. As early as the pottery Neolithic, they could have sterilized pots by boiling water, but it would have been difficult in those conditions, not least because there's probably bacteria in your yeast starter. So whatever means you use to introduce yeast will probably also introduce bacteria. One kind of bacteria, which I mentioned, is lactobacillus, which is used to make yogurt. So if bacteria gets into your beer, it's not the end of the world, but it would make it sour into a modern palate, probably too strong to enjoy. But pre-modern people did sometimes store beer long-term, and they didn't always seem to mind if it was sour. Like I said, bacteria grows slower than yeast, but it's less picky in what it eats. So there's usually a sweet spot in brewing when the yeast is mostly done fermenting, but the bacteria has not spread much yet. This combination of a mild sour tang combined with the unfermented sugars that the yeast has not yet gotten to is still sought in certain conditions today. Modern brewers prevent this bacterial growth in a few different ways, including adding hops, which is a recent innovation in medieval Europe, brewing a high enough alcohol content to kill the bacteria, which doesn't apply here because this beer does not have much alcohol in it, and modern sterilization techniques, which of course were not available during the Neolithic. And because they couldn't store beer long-term, they would have had to drink beer not long after brewing it. So just like bread, you would store dry grains in the long-term and then process them as needed, and then make beer over the course of a couple days and then drink it fairly quickly, just like most other kinds of food. So previously, Anana was allowed to escape from hell, but only in exchange for her husband, Dumuzi. So he is currently in hiding. He's being pursued by Gala demons, whose job it is to take him back to hell. And he's being protected by his sister, Geshkanana, and their unnamed friend, 
Just recently, the friend promised to protect him on pain of being eaten by dogs. But the Gala went to Dumuzi's friend. They offered him the water gift. He accepted it. They offered him the grain gift. He accepted it. The friend said, Dumuzi hid in the ditches of Arali. Dumuzi fell down in the ditches of Arali. In the ditches of Arali, the Gala caught Dumuzi. Dumuzi turned pale and wept. He cried out, My sister saved my life. My friend caused my death. If my sister's child wanders in the street, let the child be protected. Let the child be blessed. But if my friend's child wanders in the street, let the child be lost. Let the child be cursed. And curses his friend's child. <laughs> Fuck that kid. Yeah. He has it coming. The Gala surrounded Dumuzi. They bound his hands. They bound his neck. They beat the husband of Inanna. Dumuzi raised his arms to heaven, to Utu, the god of justice, and cried out, Oh, Utu, you are my brother-in-law. I am the husband of your sister. I am the one who carried food to the holy shrine. I am the one who brought wedding gifts to Unug. I kissed the holy lips. I danced on the holy knees, the knees of Inanna. Change my hands into the hands of a gazelle. Change my feet into the feet of a gazelle. Let me escape from my demons. Let me escape to Kubi Resh. The merciful Utu accepted Dumuzi's tears. He changed his hands into the hands of a gazelle. He changed his feet into the feet of a gazelle. So in the other version, we saw that Utu turns Dumuzi into a snake, which recalls Dumuzi's association with Ningish Zida, which we look at in episode 34. Underworld snake god. Yes. Cool. Anyway, here he turns him into a gazelle. By the way, he becomes an animal to escape his fate. And here we see him escape to his sister's house. When Geshchinana found Dumuzi in the sheepfold, she wept. She brought her mouth close to heaven. She brought her mouth close to earth. Her grief covered the horizon like a garment. She tore at her eyes. She tore at her mouth. She tore at her thighs. The gala climbed the reed fence. The first gala struck Dumuzi on the cheek with a piercing nail. The second gala struck Dumuzi on the other cheek with a shepherd's crook. The third gala smashed the bottom of the churn. The fourth gala threw the drinking cup down from its peg. The fifth gala shattered the churn. The sixth gala shattered the cup. The seventh gala cried, Rise, Dumuzi, husband of Anana, son of Sirtur, brother of Geshchinana. Rise from your false sleep. Your ewes are seized. Your lambs are seized. Your goats are seized. Your kids are seized. Take off your holy crown from your head. Take off your meg garment from your body. Let your royal scepter fall to the ground. Take off your holy sandals from your feet. Naked, you go with us. Take off all your clothes. You're going with us naked. You can sense a theme. <laughs> all air traffic must be done naked. Yeah. <laughs> Bear traffic control. Bear traffic control. The Gala surrounded Dumuzi. They surrounded him. They bound his hands. They bound his neck. The churn was silent. No milk was poured. The cup was shattered. Dumuzi was no more. The sheepfold was given to the winds. And everyone is sad about it, which is where Inanna comes in. Is Inanna sad about it too? <laughs> Who could have done this? <laughs> right. So I'm saying. <laughs> the I do part, it's supposed to be in sickness and in health until death. Mm -hmm. Not sickness and health until you get sold by your otherworldly bride yeah. to pay off a debt. Those feel like extenuating circumstances. Yeah. But I mean, if you weren't ready to agree to that, should you really get married? That is a good point. <laughs> a lament was raised in the city. My lady weeps bitterly for her young husband. Inanna weeps bitterly for her young husband. Woe for her husband. Woe for her young love. Woe for her house. Woe for her city. Dumuzi was taken captive in Unug. He will no longer bathe in Eridu. He will no longer soap himself at the holy shrine. He will no longer treat the mother of Inanna as his mother. He will no longer perform his sweet task among the maidens of the city. He will no longer compete with the young men of the city. He will no longer raise his sword higher than the Kur Gara priests. Great is the grief of those who mourn for Dumuzi. Inanna wept for Dumuzi. Gone is my husband, my sweet husband. Gone is my love, my sweet love. <laughs> My beloved has been taken from the city. Oh, you flies of the steppe. My beloved bridegroom has been taken from me. Before I could wrap him with a proper shroud. 
the wild bull lives no more. The shepherd, the wild bull, lives no more. Dumusi, the wild bull, lives no more. I ask the hills and the valleys, where is my husband? I say to them, I can no longer bring him food. I can no longer serve him drink. The jackal lies down in his bed. The raven dwells in his sheepfold. You ask me about his reed pipe? The wind must play it for him. You ask me about his sweet songs? The wind must sing them for him. Oh, that's sad. It would be more sad if she didn't, like, <laughs> kill him. Exactly. But it's fine, I guess. Siratur, the mother of Dumuzi, wept for her son. My heart plays the reed pipe of mourning. Once my boy wandered so freely on the step, now he is captive. Once Dumuzi wandered so freely on the step, now he is bound. The ewe gives up her lamb, the goat gives up her kid. My heart plays the reed pipe of mourning. Oh, treacherous step! In the place where he once said, my mother will ask for me. Now he cannot move his hands, he cannot move his feet. My heart plays the reed pipe of mourning. I would go to him, I would see my child. I was just thinking how that's a cool line. I might borrow that. Yeah. My heart plays the reed pipe of mourning. <laughs> right. <Will I> sample that. <laughs> the mother walked to the desolate place. Siratur walked to where Dumuzi lay. She looked at the slain wild bull. She looked into his face. She said, My child, the face is yours. The spirit has fled. There is mourning in the house. There is grief in the inner chambers. The sister wandered about the city, weeping for her brother. Yeshchinana wandered about the city, weeping for Dumuzi. Oh, my brother, who is your sister? I am your sister. Oh, Dumuzi, who is your mother? I am your mother. The day that dawns for you will also dawn for me. The day that you will see, I also see. I would find my brother. I would comfort him. I would share his fate. When she saw the sister's grief, when Inanna saw the grief of Geshchinana, she spoke to her gently. Your brother's house is no more. Dumuzi has been carried away by the gala. I would take you to him, but I do not know the place. You mean the underworld that you just got back from? <laughs> <laughs> wow, should this Inanna is just up to some shit. Just like, oh no. Then a fly appeared. The holy fly circled the air above Inanna's head and spoke. If I tell you where Demuzi is, what will you give me? Inanna said. If you tell me, I will let you frequent the beer houses and taverns. I will let you dwell among the talk of the wise ones. I will let you dwell among the songs of the minstrels. I like this little ideology for like, hey, why are there always flies flying around in the tavern? Like, well, one time Inanna made a promise. <laughs> True. I mean, is that what we really feel that flies want, though? Well, apparently. How do we know they're not gaining all our wisdom just by listening to us and drinking all our beer? I, gu I guess. Fly on the wall. Fine. The fly spoke. Lift your eyes to the edges of the steppe. Lift your eyes to Arali. There you will find Geshtinana's brother. There you will find the shepherd, Dumuzi. Inanna and Geshtinana went to the edges of the steppe. They found Dumuzi weeping. Inanna took Dumuzi by the hand and said, You will go to the underworld half the year. Your sister, since she has asked, will go the other half. On the day you are called, that day you will be taken. On the day Geshtinana is called, that day you will be set free. So it's a double Persephone situation. Nice. That's uh... Two Persephone's taking shifts. Oh. But do they have to bang the overlord of the underworld? That's the question. Well, it's not mandatory. Uh, do they get to bang the overlord? <laughs> that is a good question. Of the underworld. Well, the, uh, the the myth in episode six is about the god of disease banging the goddess of the underworld, so. Amazing. That's tracks. Inanna placed Dumuzi in the hands of the Eternal. Holy Eresh Kigal, great is your renown. Holy Eresh Kigal, I sing your praises. Mm -hmm.